0: Hebrews 11, and then put a finger in Genesis 12, we'll be reading passages from both those locations. Hebrews 11 and Genesis 12, we're continuing in our series called The Life of Faith this morning. And today we really reached the preeminent figure in biblical faith as far as a human being, and that is Abraham. Abraham. And Abraham occupies a lot of chapter 11, the hall of faith. He'll be uh, coming up again for the next couple weeks. We were just praying backstage before the worship started, the worship team and I, and uh, Sean, our worship leader, was praying for the message, and he prayed, oh, Lord, Abraham today, Abraham's the Mac Daddy of faith. Thank you for him, Lord. I think he said it well, Abraham really is the Mac Daddy of faith, and he's considered the father of faith, really. And so we're going to be looking at his life and also Sarah's life for the next couple weeks, and we'll start this morning by reading in Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10, and then we'll read a few verses from Genesis 12, and we'll talk about it. So Hebrews 11, starting in verse 8, it says, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise because he was looking for the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. Now let's turn to Genesis chapter 12 and the story that is alluded to there in the text of Hebrews 11. And we'll read a few verses here and we'll pray and we'll get into the study. Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, "'Go forth from your country and from your relatives "'and from your father's house.'" to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. And Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was in the land at that time. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the center and the focus of Scripture, that everything in it points to you. And that even this life of faith of Abraham, it speaks of you, Jesus, because you are the object of Christian faith. You are the one who is right and good and worthy and who rules and who reigns. You are the one in whom we have faith. And we thank you for the example of Abraham, that because you're such a great and good and faithful God, he was willing to go forth. And to be engaged in your mission, to be used by you for your glory. And Lord, we would pray the same for our lives. That This morning, you would become larger in our lives. That Jesus Christ, you would become preeminent. That you would increase and we would decrease. That you'd become so much larger that it'd be no problem for us to obey. We'd have a greater understanding of your sovereignty and your goodness and your wisdom and your will. That when you say go, we would be quick to go. That we be people who don't vacillate. That we want to be people who are on the fence. We want to be people who are overly entangled with the affairs of the world. But we be wholly given to Jesus Christ and his glory. We ask that you would do this work in our lives. And speak to us now through the life of Abraham. Give us insight, wisdom, discernment, and knowledge. Give us understanding. And Holy Spirit, make application to our individual lives. We pray that there be a real sense of your holiness now and your glory as your word is proclaimed in this place and that you'd be exalted above all else, Jesus. And the Holy Spirit, you would please anoint me to speak your truth for your glory and the building up of this church. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Abraham, the Mac Daddy of faith, we have our painting today with Abraham uh, leading Sarah there on a camel, and that is the Oak of Moray behind them. Very important story at the Oak of Moray, and we'll get to that in just a few minutes. But once again, our artist has done an incredible job at capturing the characters here. I invite you to come up on stage after the service and take, yeah, you can praise the Lord for the artist if you want. By the way, we've now posted all the paintings online, so if you go to our website, you can go and look at the ones, and here they are on the walls as well, so get a look at those. Well, here's what we see when we look at Abraham. We see that Abraham's life of faith exemplifies faith that is willing, okay? That's what we get today. Abraham's life of faith exemplifies faith that is willing. Abel was faith worshiping. Enoch pictured faith walking. Noah taught us about faith working, but Abraham is faith willing. That is to say, faith that is willing to respond to God. And we see the progression of things once again in Hebrews 11. Faith that worships walks, and faith that walks works, and faith that worships, walks, and works is willing. It's willing to adjust its life according to the will of God and the call of God. It's willing to build for things that are bigger than merely us and the temporal things and the visceral and the visual. And what we see about Abraham is that when God spoke to him, he listened. When God promised, he trusted. And when God commanded, he obeyed. And faith does this because faith is trust. In the context of Hebrews 11, faith is trust, trusting God, believing God, and trust is willing. Trust is willing. And there are three things that we see Abraham was willing to do by faith in our text this morning. Number one, Abraham was willing to go. Number two, Abraham was willing to forego. And number three, Abraham was willing to worship And to witness. This life of faith, Abraham by faith was willing to go when he needed to, willing to forego when he needed to, and willing to worship and witness when it was important. So let's look at that first point. Abraham was willing to go. The important part of that point being this he was willing to go without knowing where he was going. Now that's a big deal. We see faith that is willing. Willing to go without knowing where it was going. Now, I want to suggest to you that there's a very clear reason why Abraham was willing to do that. As we read through Genesis chapter 12, the first three verses is one long sentence. And God says something five different times in that one sentence. Did you catch it? God says the words, I will five times in that one sentence what we have here in hebrews chapter 12 is the famous abrahamic covenant and we can unpack it for weeks and for months on end i mean you know we could but we're going to stick on tasks this morning but what we understand is that the thrust of it the weight of it is on the i will of god The thrust and the weight is not on the would you, Abraham, but rather on the I will of God. And so because God's word came to Abraham as I will accomplish thus and so, this, that, and the other, then Abraham was willing to go. Now the same is true in our lives. We have the word of God before us. And the thrust and the weight of the word of God is on the person of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has and will accomplish. You need to understand that the Bible is a book about God. You see, we misread the Bible when we come to it thinking it's primarily about us or that it's some sort of, uh, you know self-help manual or or some sort of answer book. It is primarily a book about God. And the thrust of it is who God is and what God has done. And in light of that, then we are willing to respond with faith and obedience. We then have a faith that is willing because God said, I will. Amen. Amen. And living on this side of the cross, we have a faith that is willing because Jesus Christ says, I have. To tell us I, I have done, it is finished, paid in full, the price for our sins. And that's what's going on with Abraham. God spoke to him and God said five times, I will accomplish these things. And so when he said go to Abraham, Abraham didn't have to know where he was going to go. He simply knew that God would and so He went that's trust, that's faith. The vagueness of God's directive to Abraham made it a real decision of faith. He didn't know that he was going to be going to Canaan until he got there. God simply said go. He didn't tell him. Now, I don't know all the particulars of that and wouldn't you like to know? I mean, you'd really like to know the details because our lives are like this. You know, God just kind of says, go, and we really want the details. I mean, what did Abraham and Sarah and Lot and all the homies do? You know, they walked out the front door, right or left. How did they know? Do they go straight for 400 miles and then veer left at these oaks and then right at this valley? I mean, we don't have the details. I don't know exactly how the Spirit of God led them, but I know the Spirit of God led them. And I know we have the same promise. Romans chapter eight, verse 14 says, all those who are the sons of God are being led by the spirit of God. And you see, we have this real tendency to get caught up in the details. We all wanted it from the story. Well, how do you know when he walked out his door to go right or left? What did he do? God doesn't tell us. God is a God of details so that we don't have to be caught up in them. Understand that. And so we know that the spirit led him. Abraham wasn't told about Canaan until after he went. And it's neat because the uncertainty of the command forced Abraham to rely simply upon God's word. This is good. The uncertainty of it, the lack of detail, forced Abraham to simply rely upon God's word, the bare word of God. Calvin called this the verbum nudum the naked word of God in Latin, the verbum nudum, the naked word of God. It was beyond what he could see. It was beyond understanding. It was beyond what he was feeling. And we are so caught up in those things. How do you feel about it? Oh, I'm not sure how I feel about it. I'm not feeling very good. Oh, I have a weird feeling. Oh, it doesn't feel right. I mean, this is our language. This is our grammar. We talk about this all the time. But you see, the verbum nudum, the naked word of God, supersedes how you feel. And it supersedes what is seen. We love the seen. We love the tangible and the visual and the visceral. We love that. We love if I could just get my hands on it, if I, if I just, if you just laid the plan out for me in black and white, Lord, if you just put it up on a signpost, I mean, if the writing was on the wall like that whole many, many Tuckle you Farson thing in Daniel, then I would go. All he had was the bare, naked word of God and that really required faith. And it required now that Abraham gave himself holy to the Lord. There was nothing else to go on. He didn't know the end game necessarily. I mean, he knew that God said he would make a great nation of them, but little Abe was 75 years old now, you know. That's already requiring faith. Didn't have any kids yet. He didn't know all the details in between. He just knew that God was gonna do what God said he would do. And he had to give himself wholly to the Lord. In 2003, my wife and I were up at the family cabin in Idaho. My parents owned a little tiny family cabin overlooking a lake in Idaho. And my wife and I were up there, and it was a good time in our life. You know, we just had one kid at the time. Not that two is bad. I just, I'm just giving details. We just had one kid at the time, and he was a couple years old, and life was easy, life was mellow, and I was working at the family surfboard business and also doing the college ministry at a church in Santa Barbara, and I was willing to stick with that my whole life. That was a great gig. We were happy as clams there. And my wife woke up uh, next to me one morning there in Idaho, and we woke up and we looked at each other, and it was the weirdest thing. We knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that we were supposed to, with others, start a church in Carpinteria. It was just an Abraham thing. I mean, we just woke up there in Idaho like Abraham just woke up here in in Haran one day. We just woke up there in Idaho and we just knew by the command of the Lord that we are supposed to start a new church in Carpinteria. And that's all we knew. That's it. And so I got on the phone uh, after we got out of bed and called my best friend, Pastor G. And uh, he was working at another church in Santa Barbara and said, hey dude, God just told us to start a church in Carpinteria." He said, I'm in, tell me when. <laughs> and that's all we knew. And so because we didn't know anymore, we just started praying. And we got some like-minded people together and started praying. And first it was five people praying in our house. Kate and I were living down in Ventura at the time. Where's up of my Ventura people? Hello, Ventura. <laughs> That was so weak. (laughs) We were living down in Ventura at the time, and uh, we started having little prayer meetings there and just praying for the church. We didn't have any details. We just knew God said do it. And it started with about five people. Within a few months, that prayer meeting was about 150 people or so. And uh, we started looking at buildings in Carpenteria because the prayer meeting was 150 people, so we knew we were going to need a little bit of space. You know what I mean? And so we started looking around for buildings in Carpinteria and we came across this one. And I knew this building because I went to school at Main School right there, right across the street here is where I went to school. I was actually a sixth grade president there at Main School. (laughs) That was the pinnacle of my political career, thank God. It was all I could handle, politics. And uh, I remember when this building burnt down in 1981. And uh, I can remember, my parents and I lived just a few blocks that way at the time, and we could see the smoke and the flames in the middle of the night when it burnt down. I was hoping school was canceled and all that stuff. And. It was a historic building in Carpinteria. You know, after the turn of the century, this was a lemon packing factory here. And Carpinteria used to be world famous for its lemons. Now it's more famous for its avocados, but it used to be world famous for its lemons. And all the lemons would come into this place and they pack them up and then they drop them right on the train and they go all over the United States from here. And so I knew this building and uh, this building was vacant and we walked into it and it was really big. And uh, really scary, and we had some connections with the uh, owner of the building, and we started talking with them about possibly leasing this building to do a church and the rent was going to be sixteen, thousand dollars a month. Now we had never you know we didn 't have, have a church yet, we had a prayer meeting, and you don 't take your collection at a prayer meeting, you just don 't at least we don't <laughs> Some people might, but maybe we should i don 't know. We, we did it, you know, and so we didn't really have any money per se, and, and somehow, by the grace of God, we secured a lease for this building, having no church, no service yet, and no money, but a lot of financial debt now, $15,000 a month. And some of you around in the beginning, you remember this was just a bare warehouse at the time, just nothing at all, just a bare warehouse. And it was as dirty, nasty, dank, and as abandoned as you could imagine it being. Now, we didn't have the details. We didn't know that sometime later on, there'd be 800 people per service crammed in this building. God didn't tell us that. We didn't know how he would do it. He didn't tell us about the building project. He didn't tell us that he would provide $1.6 million to build this place out and still be able to pay our rent and plant other churches and fully fund them. He didn't tell us any of that. He just told us to start the church. And by faith, by grace, for the glory of God, knowing nothing more than the command to go, we showed up one Sunday morning and God did the rest. But you see, the weight of that was on the person of Jesus Christ because we knew that Jesus had said in Matthew 16, I will build my church. And so there was never this sense that it was my church or our church. It was always his church. And if it's his church, then it's his problem. <laughs> you understand that? Oh man, I claim that one all the time. That's one of, that's like my, that's a big one for me. If it's his church, it's his problem. And so the rent, $16,000 a month, which is way more now, they've raised the rents. I've seen all you freaks coming. Uh, that's not our problem, that's God's problem. And all the details were God's problem. He simply told us to go. There are things that God is telling you to do. God is saying in your life to go. It might merely be into the cubicle next to yours at work to minister to somebody. It might simply be down the hall to speak to that other student in school. It might be just down to the local beach to evangelize the kids. It might be just to go to someone in your family or someone in your community that you're estranged from. But when God says go, you need to trust him. He's wise and he's good and he's building for his glory and the gates of hell will not prevail over his work. And so when God says go, you need to go. And the call of the gospel, the call on the Christian is to put all of our hope on and in the word and work of Jesus Christ and nothing else. The call of the gospel is to free ourselves from self-sufficiency From our own ingenuity, from our own wherewithal, from our own worldly connections, and to put all our hope in and on the word and the work of the person of Jesus Christ. And you see, faith that does that is willing, and that's the call of the gospel, to abandon all else for the sake of Jesus Christ. In fact, he said very strong words in Matthew 10, 37, whoever loves his mother and father more than me is not worthy of me. That's a hard one to swallow until you've really known the Lord. You know, I remember uh, being a kid and driving in the car with my mom and you know how kids do, they kind of explore their they they like to get secure, and so they're asking mommy and daddy, you know, do you love me more than this? Do you love me more than that? I mean, even adults do that, and my mom was driving me into Santa Barbara one time. I think I was going to work with her at the family surfboard business. I remember it clear as day. I remember it was your, my mom's here, I remember it was your Nissan Maxima that you had at the time, that station wagon, and we were driving down the road, and it was on Cabrillo Boulevard in Santa Barbara, almost to State Street, and I was asking my mom, I can't remember all the details, but Mom, you know, do you love me more than this? Do you love me more than that? And it was stuff, you know, it was like my huffy bike and, you know, our boat and stuff like that. My little sister, do you love me more than my little sister? That was a big one for me. I can't remember how she answered. It must have been in the affirmative. I'm sorry to my little sister, but it must have been in the affirmative because the next one really shocked me at the time. I said, Mom, do you love me more than God? And she looked me in the eyes and she said, no. I'll never forget that. I will never forget that. That was one of the most profound moments in my life. I was just a little guy, and that rattled me to the core. And she said to me, I love God the most. Jesus Christ has saved me, and he's the God of the universe, and we need to love God the most. And then our family. It silenced me. And it shook me, but it shaped me. It really shaped my understanding of God. And so now with my own kids, I teach them from the youngest age that we love God the most, that Jesus Christ is the most important one over everybody else. And they get it. You ask my four-year-old, who do you love most in the world? She'll say, Jesus and God. go ask her when you see her that's what she'll say and Jesus said whoever loves his mother and father more than me is not worthy of me and he said in Mark 8 for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it and what God wants to deal with in all of our lives is our need to control uh oh now we have this don't we We have this real need to control and to be in control because if we feel that we're in control, then it perpetuates the myth of security in our lives. And all of us have bought into the myth of security. This is part of the American dream, the myth of security. We have all bought into it that we are secure. And you see, the more that we have this sense of control and ability to control, the more we feel secure. But notice I called it the myth of security. It is a myth because you do not know what is around the corner. And you do not know what tomorrow holds. And we build this whole infrastructure and these walls around us that appear to lend themselves to security. But security is only a myth. You have no idea what tomorrow holds. You have no idea if you may lose your job, if you may lose your spouse. All those things have happened in our church recently. And the security that is so important, a core ideology of what shapes us as Americans and as humans is really a myth because of the unknowns. And yet this perceived security causes us to take risks for our own benefit all the time. All the time we do things to benefit ourselves and little risks because we have this perceived security. I've built up this infrastructure and this nest egg, therefore I can do this for myself and I'll be okay. But simultaneously what this myth of security does is it paralyzes us from taking risks for God. We take little tiny risks for ourselves and our own well-being and our own benefit all the time. But this myth of security paralyzes our society and Christians from taking risks for God because we think, well, I've got it together and I've got this nest egg and I've got this comfort. I can't go. I can't put it all on the line. I can't lay aside the family business. I can't lay aside the house. I can't lay aside these comforts. And we're paralyzed by this satanic false sense of security. God wants to deal with that. Because the only security we have is in the person of Jesus Christ and the gospel of God. (laughs) That is the only security that is real. And what we need to be willing to do as Christians is take risks according to that reality. That benefit the kingdom of God. They lend themselves to the glory of God rather than for our own benefit. You see, Abraham, by all accounts in the Bible, was a wealthy man. Nothing wrong with being wealthy. But God needed to deal with his need to control. And so God said, Go. Where am I going? Cayete, mijo. Cayete. The Spanish, or shut up, son, shut up. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, he didn't really say that. But I'm not gonna tell you where, I simply told you to go. You see, Abraham didn't need all the info or all the answers to obey. That's a real lesson for you and I. He was really getting it. He didn't demand all the info or all the answers to obey God, that is trust. God wants to deal with our need to control and what's profound what we must realize here is that Abraham didn't get any answers until he obeyed. Once he obeyed, then there was understanding. Then there was the aha. And then comes about that phraseology hindsight is 2020. 20. He didn't get any answers until he obeyed. And so many of us are sitting around paralyzed by this satanic false sense of security saying God I need answers. And that precludes us from simple obedience because we're demanding answers that God is not obligated to give. But when he obeyed, he got the answers. When he went, when he walked out the door, then he discovered by the leading of the Holy Spirit that it was Canaan to which he was gonna go. Now, ask any Christian, what's your favorite verse? And at least 75% of them will say, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. That's a good verse, you know, and a lot of Christians, that's their favorite verse, and it's one of those security verses, God is going to take care of me. It doesn't work out so hot when you're a martyr, <laughs> but nevertheless, many Christians claim that, failing to recognize that there is a context there. He was speaking to the nation of Israel when they are in exile in Babylon, but nevertheless, it speaks of God's character that he cares for his people. But here's something we often miss about it God says in verse 11, I know the plans I have for you. Immediately, where we go with that is, Oh, awesome, Lord. Tell me the plans. That's immediately where we go with that. Oh, you know the plans? Perfect. I've been wondering what the plan was. Tell me the plans. Speak to me, Lord. Tell me the plans. But notice verse 12 and 13 of Jeremiah 29, 11. God immediately says, after saying, I know the plans I have for you. He says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, God says. So the discerning Christian now realizes, oh, wait a minute. It's not about the plans. God is the plan. You see, now that's a shift. That's a paradigm shift. God is saying... I know the plans I have for you. Don't worry about it. You come and call on me. You come and pray to me. You come and seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And having found him, we will have discovered the plans. Jesus Christ is the plan. We get all caught up in the details and demanding to know the step-by-step when it's very simple, God is the goal. That's why Abraham was willing to go because God said again five times in Genesis 12, one through three, I will, I will do this, I will do that, I will do this and that. And the first and greatest commandment that Jesus said to us is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything else is details. And there's a real disconnect in our life because we want to know the details because it perpetuates our sense of security all the time, not realizing that, that is entirely false if our security is not Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And then that false sense of security precludes us from going when God says to go. You see, God is not your genie in a bottle. He does not exist to give you answers he is a glorious, sovereign, holy, awesome, terrifying God of the universe. And his very nature commands worship and obedience. And it is such silliness for dirt to stand on earth and shake their fists at God and say, I won't go to you tell me the details. And we all do it. And God wants to deal with that. We spend an exorbitant amount of time asking why, where, when, God, why me? Why did that happen? When are you going to bring me a husband? Oh, God, here I am serving you, a faithful handmaiden of the Lord in the house of the Lord. Where is my man? (laughs) And we hear the same from the men where's my chick? Where is she? I'm being a godly man. I'm leading a men's group. Where is she? When, Lord? Why are they hooked up and not me? We spend an exorbitant amount of time asking why, where, and when. It turns out that we are often more demanding of God than trusting in God. And this needs to be corrected. You see, what Jesus called us to is a childlike faith. A childlike faith Jesus spoke of. A childlike faith. A childlike faith just simply trusts in the Father. You know, you've all done it, those of you that have kids, at one time or another, you've all been in the pool teaching your kid how to swim. And you're in the pool, and they're standing on the edge, and you say, come on, jump to Daddy. And the Father rejoices when the kid's just like, yeah, dude, bare minimum, what? Blah. <laughs> And jumps into your arms, right? You're like, yeah, that's what a kid should do. Of course I'm going to catch you. I'm your daddy. There's no way I'm not going to catch you. I'm not going to let you drown in three feet of water. <laughs> I'm going to catch you. Don't be silly. And, and the same father despairs when the same kid, and it happens when the same kid comes to a point where they just won't do that anymore. No. Son, what are you doing? Jump. No. I'll catch you. Come closer. Come closer. No, I'm right here. You only got to jump like two inches. Just, you can just fall. Just, come, I'll catch you. I'm right here. No. You see, see, to the Father, that is such silliness. We're merciful with a child. We come to the edge of the pool. We hold their little hands and we ease them in. We're very merciful and kind. And yet it doesn't negate the silliness of that child for thinking that the father's going to let them drown in three feet of water. And yet that is what we do to God all the time. He's so much bigger than all of our circumstances. And we stand on the edge and say, no, God, no. What if I drown? When? Why? Where? You got to show me. And the father says, you were to have a childlike faith. Not a childish faith. There's a big difference. Childlike faith trusts the Father, jumps off the edge into the arms of the Father, never thought that the Father would drop or lose them. A childish faith, on the other hand, complains and moans and groans when they're supposed to be enjoying the ride. You see, it really is God's heart for you that you would enjoy the ride. That you would know God and enjoy this life. He really wants you to enjoy the ride. Anybody ever been on a car trip with a young child? been <laughs> a car trip with a young child? We used to uh, go to Mammoth a lot when I was a kid, uh, skiing and stuff. And my sister and I would sit in the back seat, and two young kids in the back seat is just as wrong as it could be. You know how this is. And I remember my dad driving to Mammoth, reaching back, just, I'll pull this car over right now. You, get, get on your side. Get over there, just. I remember just going. He couldn't quite reach me, you know. So that was the threat of pulling over then because then he'd get out and boom. Because what are the kids doing? The kids are in the back, bickering and whining and touching each other. But, but, But the quintessential one is, are we there yet? You guys knew it. Are we there yet? Every three seconds, are we there yet? When are we going to get there? Are we there? And it drives you nuts. <laughs> and as an adult now, with a little bit of understanding, you, you're going down the road, and it's beautiful. You're on your way to Mammoth. The scenery's nice, and the music is on, and your wife is there, and she's gorgeous, and everything is cool, and the cars are, and you're enjoying the ride. And you're like, you stupid kid. <laughs> Why can't you just enjoy the ride? We're going to get there, and when we get there, it's going to be awesome, but can you enjoy the ride for a minute? But they're childish. And so many Christians are childish. In the back seat, whining and complaining to the father. Are we there yet? Why aren't we there? What's going on? And the father says, my son, my daughter... Can you be quiet and enjoy the ride? I'm doing good things in your life. Can you enjoy the ride? Can you enjoy my company? Can you open your eyes to where you are and see the beauty of where I have you right now? And be useful and fruitful and productive for the glory of God where you are right now. You see, God wants you to enjoy the ride. And he himself is the goal anyway. So there's no sense asking, are we there yet? Because he himself is the goal. When Jesus called the disciples, he simply walked up to him and said, follow me. He didn't give me any details. He just said, follow me. You see, he's enough. He's enough and we need to get our eyes on him. Abraham was willing to go without knowing where he was going. Point number two, he was willing to forego according to what he did know. He was willing to forego according to what he did know. You see, faith is willing and it's willing to forego permanency in and of this world because faith lives for the future reality. You remember that? You remember that from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It has to do with the unseen realm and future realities guaranteed us in the word and the work and the person of Jesus Christ. And so Abraham was willing to forego certain things in this world according to what he did know about the world to come. He was willing to live for more than the immediate. That's what Hebrews 11.10 is referring to is the heavenly and eternal Jerusalem. When it says he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And then it pictures Abraham in light of that reality, the future, eternity, as living as a pilgrim in this current life. It says in Hebrews 11.9, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. So Abraham was fixated on, convinced about the eternal reality with God. And so in this life, his dwelling place was a tent. Now a tent speaks of the idea of just passing through, just staying for a little while. And this is a picture of a pilgrim. Now a pilgrim is not a drifter, But a pilgrim has a set and certain goal. A pilgrim is not one that's just sort of aimlessly going around just wherever the wind will blow him or her. But a pilgrim has a certain and set goal. And the problem with us as Christians is too many of our set and certain goals are wrapped up in the here and now. We're only convinced about the value of the here and now. Too many of us are concerned about building mansions now when Jesus said, in my Father's house there are many mansions and I go to prepare a place for you in John 14. If it were not so, I would have told you and if I go, I will come to get you that where I am, there you may be also. And he promises us a better heavenly dwelling and a place of reward according to faithfulness and yet we so quickly and easily get wrapped up in the here and now and building our mansions here and now. Now there's nothing wrong with a mansion. You have a mansion? Awesome. Invite me over for dinner. I love your mansion. (laughs) I love your mansion all day long. There's no problem. We just need to make sure that in this life we are endeavoring to be rich toward God and not only rich in the here and now. Peter knew what it was to leave behind some things to follow Jesus and he complained one time and Jesus responded to him in Mark 10 verse 28 Peter began to say behold Jesus we've left everything and followed you okay he just had that feeling of what's in it for me you showed up one day there when I'm washing my nets and said follow me well I left the nets I left the boats I left the family business and now I'm following you What's in it for me? Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, there's none who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake. There's a caveat there. For my sake and for the gospel's sake. But that he will receive a hundred times as much. Now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms. Speaking of the reality of the kingdom of God in the here and now. (laughs) Along with persecutions, oh, the name it and claim it crowd, they like the first part of that verse, but not the second part. I want a hundred houses, but they're never talking about a hundred persecution. hundredfold hundred persecution. Give it brother a hundred persecution. Nobody says that. <laughs> Along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last shall be first. In other words, Peter, you need to reverse your thinking. You're caught up in the here and now. You're looking for the temporal reward. But there's something bigger. There's something more to live for. And I'm telling you that I am going to go to prepare a place for you. And it's going to be wonderful. And I'm going to come to receive you that there you may be also. But let's get our eyes and our hearts and our affections freed from the things of this world and set on the things of God. It doesn't mean that we're going to lose everything in this world. It might mean that. It's just a matter of priorities. And again, God is a giver, not a taker. And this really deals with that famous bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins. Have you seen that one? It was really popular in the 80s when everyone was making money. Remember in the 80s? <laughs> and it says, he who dies with the most toys wins. Well, that's about as anti-Christ as it could get. Because there is something called the Bema Seat of Christ, the Judgment Seat of Christ, There is coming a time when we will stand before Jesus Christ and give an account for what we did with the time, talents, connections, friends, family, resources that God gave us. I mean, we will stand before Jesus Christ, the one who has the royal diadems upon his head and whose eyes are flaming fire, and we will answer for how we use this life for his glory or our own. Nobody's going to lose their salvation at that point. It is for reward. But there will be many who see their life's work burn up as wood, hay, and stubble, as Corinthians speaks of. Because it was for you and for you alone. And it might have been fun in this lifetime, but in the life to come, it is meaningless. And I need to tell you that the life to come is way longer than this one. And how foolish it is to trade this short life for such a long and glorious eternity. You see, the Christian at some point has to say, okay, life isn't about me. It's about Jesus Christ. And he's given me gifts and talents and resources to glorify him in this world for a short time. And I'm going to do that. He's probably not going to tell me all the details. He's not going to give me the play-by-play He's just going to say go. And when he does, I'm going to go. And I'm going to go for his glory. You see, the Bible promises that there is reward in the life to come. And that's how Abraham was living. And so Abraham was willing to forego according to what he did know. He was willing to forego creating that facade of security, putting down those deep roots, building in this life for this life. He was willing to forego the passing pleasures of this world for the ones of the world to come. You see, a pilgrim keeps the lightest touch on this world and has a certain and set goal in the world to come and endeavors to be rich toward God, building for something that will last. There's another kind of pilgrimage that Christians are required to make, and it's this. When any person comes to Christ, God demands of him or her a pilgrimage from their old pattern of living into a new type of living. Right? I mean, things should change in our lives when we're following Jesus Christ, right? I mean, let's not soft sell this thing. There should be some transformation. God is all about transformation. There should be some real change that happens in our lives. And that's a pilgrimage from the old ways of thinking and doing into the new ways. And one of the biggest obstacles to the life of faith is the old way of living and the refusal to let those things go. You see, many of our lives of faith are impeded by worldliness. Now we gotta understand worldliness. Worldliness is the force that makes us wanna hold on to the old life. Speaking of a Christian now, worldliness is an attitude, not necessarily an act. It's wanting to do things that are sinful, selfish, or worthless, whether we actually do them or not. It's wanting fame, praise, recognition, reputation, and stuff, whether we ever get them or not. It's holding, now listen to this one, it's holding to high standards of conduct outwardly, but inwardly longing to live like the rest of the world. It's hypocrisy. Worldliness is not so much what we do, it's what we want to do. It's an issue of the heart. What keeps us from doing those things might be fear of consequences or what others think or self righteousness or whatever. But all the while in our heart, we still have the strong desire to do the wrong. It's a hard issue. And Jesus dealt with this in the Sermon on the Mount, the Kingdom Manifesto. He said, It is written, Thou shalt not commit murder. But I say to you, if you have hatred in your heart toward a brother, you're already guilty. It is written, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, look upon a woman to lust after her in your heart. You have already committed adultery. It's always an issue of the heart. And worldliness is an attitude that wants to live like the rest of the world, but because of hypocrisy often, it doesn't. This was the sin of the Pharisees. But you see, the Christian who is really walking with God discovers that he or she can do whatever they want to do in this life see, that's the mark of spiritual maturity. The issue is what you want to do. The mature Christian finds that they want to do things that glorify God. There's less of this inner conflict. Now, as I thought about this this week, I realized one thing. I'm more worldly than I thought. I now know this Sunday that I'm more worldly than I thought it was last Sunday because I've been meditating upon these things and this definition of worldliness and there really is a sense inside of me that wants to live like the rest of the world but says well I'm a pastor so I can't I'm a Christian so I can't this and that other reason I can't it does not absolve me from the guilt that inside I'm longing to be like the world when I'm called to be otherworldly This has been repented of by me before God. This must be repented of by us before God. God looks upon the heart. And it's this worldliness that keeps us from an authentic life of faith. And the inner desire to do the wrong, even though we might not do it, is, is the root from which we need to sever ourselves. And the only way I discovered this week to really sever ourselves from that root is to fall more in love with Jesus, is to discover Jesus to be more desirable than anything the world has to offer, to see him as preeminent, as more wonderful than, more desirable than anything else the world has to offer. You see, that will then deal with that root. I found that we can't force ourselves to be good we're not called to. We're called to be transformed by the Holy Spirit through being in a loving, meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ. And then when we change the object of our love and desire, it will vanquish worldliness. And we will easily and happily forego certain things according to what we do know, which is certain, the future with Jesus Christ. And the final point, Abraham was willing to go without knowing where he was going. He was willing to forego certain things according to what he did know. And the final point, he was willing to worship and to witness. He was willing to worship and to witness. Not only did he go, not only would he forego, but he would worship and witness because he knew as the Westminster Catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end, what is the meaning of life? The meaning of life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And Abraham understood this, and so he was willing to worship and he was willing to witness. As John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. You see, when you're satisfied in Jesus Christ, you can do whatever you want to do in this lifetime because your desires change. The most mature Christian is the one who does, does exactly what he wants to do because he's so in love with Jesus Christ, he doesn't want to do anything contrary to his character. And Abraham, seeing the supremacy of God, was willing to worship and to witness in a way that was confrontational to both popular culture and the false gods that were around. This is big. We're going to end right here, but don't tune out yet. He was willing to worship and to witness in a way that confronted popular culture the false gods that were all around. In Genesis 12, 6 there, it says that he went to the Oak of Moray. Now we need to understand what the Oak of Moray was. The Oak of Moray was a place where all the soothsayers of the Canaanites would gather. Soothsayers were people who claimed to know the future apart from God. They would all gather around the Oak of Moray and so the people who had this intense desire to know the future, it's still prevalent in our community right now, all around, people want to know the future without knowing God, all the Canaanites would gather there and what the soothsayers would do was, listening to, would, was listen to the rustling of the leaves on the oak tree and then say, well, here's what the leaves tell us about the future. What's more is at this place, Shechem and the Oak of Mori, we're right in the geographical center of Canaan right in the geographical center of Canaan. So check out what Abraham does. Abraham goes right to the middle of the promised land. He goes directly to where there's false prophecies and false prophets. And it says in verse seven, he sets up an altar and he worships God. He worshiped God in a way that was confrontational to his culture. Not because he disliked the people, but because we wage war against powers and principalities and spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. And so we said, well, here's some falsehood. Here's some lies. Here's some darkness. Let's set up an altar to the one true living God right here and worship him. And I want you to notice what the outflow of that was. It says in verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram. He had never appeared to Abram before. Abram had only heard his voice. Now when Abram confronts culture with the reality of worship, builds an altar to God right there in the midst of it, God appears to him. There's a couple of reasons why I think God did that. Number one, when we worship God authentically, he shows up. Psalm 22.3 says that God inhabits the praises of Yisrael. And in John 4, verse 23, Jesus said, the father's seeking those who will worship him in spirit and truth. So when we authentically worship, we can count on God showing up, but there's a second reason why God showed up to Abraham at that point. Because God was already there. God was already confronting the idols the false religion and the lies of the Canaanites. God was already on mission in that place. And when Abraham went there by the leading of the spirit and set up the altar of praise to God, he saw God there because it was God's mission and God was already there. My brothers and sisters, this is indicative of your life. God is already on mission around you in your context at your workplace at your school amongst your friends in your family God is already there confronting falsehood and false religions and lies he's confronting them he's already there and if we would just be willing to confront culture by exalting Jesus Christ we would see more of God in our workplaces we would see more of God in our schools we would see more of God in our communities if we would get into God's mission into exalt Jesus Christ above the drama of the world yeah. Amen. not all of you are from Carpinteria but many of you are did you know that on Linen Avenue Madame Rosinka is opening up a little palm reading joint uh uh-uh. uh 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 in Jesus name I'm praying against that every single day that's the Oak of Moray I'm gonna go to the Oak of Moray and set up a dang altar of worship to the one true living God You know how the Lord has allowed um, our church very humbly to do this, to confront culture with worship? Is every year in October, the city puts on the avocado festival. It's the biggest thing that ever happens in Carpinteria, but Carpinteria is a small town. (laughs) But in Carpinteria, it's like the World Fair, the avocado festival. But the city of Carpinteria puts it on. And every year for the last several years, they've asked us to come on Sunday morning and do church. I mean, they ask us to come and build an altar of praise at the Oak of Moray. And so we go there and we say, how big's your sound system? Not big enough. Boo! And we turn it up to 11 and we worship Jesus right there. And I believe that as we worship Jesus Christ at the Oak of Moray, like Abraham did, that the soothsayers are put on notice. And that the lies come down and the strongholds come down, the strongholds that want to rip off our kids and steal from our community and destroy our marriages and break apart the fabric of society, that these come down when we confront them with the supremacy of Jesus Christ. But we can't just do it as a big church once a year. You've got to do it in your life, on your turf, to the glory of God. Not only was he willing to worship and confront culture, he was willing to witness It says in verse 8 that he went to a place called Bethel and he called upon the name of the Lord. Bethel was where the sanctuary to the chief god of the Canaanite pantheon was. He went to where the chief god was worshipped and he called upon the name of the Lord. And in the Mosaic writings, when it says name of the Lord, it generally means when it says he called upon the name of the Lord, it means that he proclaimed the name of the Lord. It means that he went there with his entourage and he had a grip of people. He had his family and Lot and all their stuff and all their people. He went there. It was very public. The locals knew exactly what he was doing. He went to the region of where the temple was to their primary God over their pantheon and he proclaimed the name of Yahweh in that place. Why? Because he had faith that was willing. He had faith that was willing to go at the bare word of God. He had faith that was willing to forego the passing pleasures of this world for the city made by God. And he had faith that was willing to worship and to witness and therefore confront culture with the reality of Jesus Christ. He didn't withdraw. He confronted to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for these lessons. Lord, we could only pray You make us men and women who are like Abraham. We ask for help, Lord. We're horribly aware of our shortcomings today in your presence. But we're wonderfully aware of your grace. And where our sin abounds, your grace abounds all the more. Where we've been faithless, you remain faithful. And so we ask of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you would come. We believe, but help our unbelief. Talk to us about the goings in our life. Talk to us about what we need to let go, what we need to forego, where we need to build altars of praise, where we need to proclaim your name. Help us, Lord. Expand the capacity of our hearts to experience you and to live for your glory. Let's get real with Jesus this morning. There's plenty of room to come and get on your face before him. Prayer team is to your right. If you're in the overflow today, there'll be a couple of people right in front of you to pray with. Take advantage of that. The Lord is here. He wants to work in your life.